When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. War has always been a catalyst for technological innovations. I mean, there's nothing that will spur human creativity and ingenuity quite like figuring out how to kill your enemies more effectively and to keep them from killing you. But besides refining the techniques of killing and defending against human combatants, militaries across time and culture have spent lots of money and energy trying to figure out ways to make their soldiers more physically and psychologically robust to other kind of battlefield perils like panic, exhaustion, and heat And many of these discoveries that military science have made in this quest uh, to make soldiers sturdier have benefited the civilian world as well. Well, my guest today on the podcast did a firsthand investigation of the fascinating history of military research and shared her findings in a highly readable and entertaining book. Her name is Mary Roach, and she's the author of Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. And today on the show, Mary gives us a look inside a whole bunch of cool stuff. Uh, It goes on in military research. For example, inside military fashion departments that create uniforms that keep soldiers cool, comfortable, and protected from chemical weapons, all while still looking good. She unpacks why diarrhea has always been one of the biggest threats in war and discusses why conquering the need to sleep has been a goal of militaries around the world for ages. Really fascinating show. It gives you behind-the-scenes look uh, at the military you probably haven't seen before. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash grunt for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Mary Roach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So you've written several books, a lot of popular books about the science and research that goes on in different domains of life, like sex or the afterlife or human space travel. And your latest is called Grunt, The Curious Science of the Military. So I'm curious, was there something in particular that led you down the re- you know, researching the research that goes on in the military. Yeah, it was kind of an odd path to this book. I don't have any background in military science or anybody in my family, but it, I was reporting a story in India on the world's hottest chili pepper, the boot cholokia, and that pepper, the Indian Defense Ministry had made a non-lethal weapon out of it. They'd made sort of a chili bomb for dispersing crowds. And so I went over there to report on that, I went to the lab where they made this, and while I was there, they were working on leech repellent. There was some other lab that had done some sort of telepathy work, and I was like, wow, military science is way more interesting than just weapons, and I'm not a technology writer, so I wasn't interested in covering uh, weapons and, and defense department technologies for, for various reasons that didn't, didn't appeal to me, but uh, the... Anyway, that so that was where the kind of the seed was planted uh, from that trip, and 
And then when I came home around that time, a retired Army pathologist had written to me because he'd read, I think, probably Stiff, and uh, he, I brought up the topic of military science, and you know, I said, I think access will probably be a problem, and he was very encouraging, and he said, you know, I think you should, you should do it, you should try it, I can introduce you to people at the morgue in Dover, um, which is a you know, place that I had assumed would be difficult for a writer to get access to. So it was a combination of those two things happening within a couple of months um, that kind of led me down that road. So yeah, I mean, what's interesting about your book, because like when I think military research, I think DARPA and like laser cannons. Um, but you you highlight the military science that goes on that's not involved with DARPA or developing next generation weapons. Um, and what I found surprising was that there was like, it seems like there was just tons of different research branches in the military um, for specific, very specific uh, facets of military life. Oh, yeah, 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 like military entomology. I mean, I'd never heard those two words put together, military and entomology. Um, and, and and then, you know, you sort of assume, oh, military entomology, that's something about putting little cameras on bees or something. But uh, in fact, it was like, um, you know, mosquito repellent, because sometimes, you know, the malaria rates, the malaria kills more soldiers than the bullets and bombs, you know, or, or, um, maggot therapy. It, it was, it was surprising that these disciplines existed and then doubly surprising to, to learn what was going on at them or in them. Yeah. And they even had like a, there's like a research department that just is dedicated to military clothing and it's, it's intense. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. very intense. Like what goes yeah. on there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Natick labs in Massachusetts, uh, us army Natick. They, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not just a lab, it's like five labs. There's the flame resistance lab, and there's the chemical shedding lab, and there's the mosquito repelling part, and then there's the how do you keep it, all this stuff from washing off, and how do you, you know, how do you get these things to, you know, work well together, and, you know, just, uh, and then there's the design studio. There's actually fashion designers that have to put this stuff together. I mean, they're really more like engineers than designers, but they're definitely, you know, doing it with an eye toward, does this make, do, do soldiers feel okay wearing this? Because if you feel like you look really stupid, it's not good for morale. So right. uniforms play a role in morale. And so that's a concern. So, so yeah, just an amazing amount of work goes into this the outfit that you see these men and women wearing when they're walking through the airport. And is there any coordination between these different research departments or is it all very... It's pretty insular. There's a tremendous amount of coordination because, uh, like in the case of a uniform, uh, if you do something to, to a textile to make it flame resistant and that counteracts its ability to shed chemical weapons or repel mosquitoes or it makes it non-breathable, you know, then then everything kind of falls apart. So every you know all of these different technologies have to play well together, and, and the they also everything is tested to work with other things, and which is kind of the biggest challenge of it is um, making sure one department's uh, development doesn't mess up another department's invention. 
you know? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, throughout the book, you, you, uh, each chapter is dedicated to a different facet of military research. And um, one chapter is about the research that's gone on in making vehicles that can withstand blasts from IEDs uh, in the wars that are going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, so yeah. can you explain how military researchers are trying to figure out what happens to the human body in a vehicle that set off, that sets off an IED? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the military's challenge, uh, with vehicles is that they tend, you know, they show up with the vehicle from the last conflict, the last war, and frequently the weapons have changed. And in, and in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had, like you said, you had, well, first you had roadside bombs, and then the, the insurgents started burying them in the roadway. And so they, the, the military needed a better vehicle, and because Humvees were really not cutting it. It was bad. And so, so, you, so you've got these contractors who are saying, here, here's my prototype vehicle. It's great. It'll save everyone's life. Well, how do you know that? Well, the, there's no, um, normally, you know, like in the automotive industry, you can put a crash test dummy in there. But the crash test dummies for the automotive industry don't work because automobiles crash head-on or this or it's a side impact. They're, they're not designed for a blast coming up from below that smashes the bottoms of passengers' feet and their pelvises and messes up their backs, um, which is what happens when you have a blast go off right underneath. So, you know, there's certain things they knew right away they could do, like, um, you know, a V-shaped or a double V-shaped chassis, which would deflect the energy off to the side rather than slamming up into this flat chassis that would then transmit all the energy into the bottoms of people's feet and their butts. So, you know, there's certain things that certainly would help right away. But in order to know what was, you know, really ultimately going to happen to people in the vehicle, they needed a crash test dummy. So they're actually designing one, which is a big undertaking. You know, the automotive industry did this work back in the 60s, and it, it's done with cadavers where you, you, to calibrate the dummy, you expose cadavers to certain, uh, to, to incrementally to different uh, amounts of blast energy. There's a, you know, a big rig with a buried explosive out at Aberdeen Proving Ground, and the cadavers are sitting in seats up on a platform, and um, then they're autopsied after the explosion. And it's very, it sounds really gory, but it's not, if, if you watch it on video, it's, you know, these two guys wearing full body Lycra suits sitting in chairs that look like they took a speed bump too fast. It's only when you really slow it down, you see how, I mean, cause everything happens so quickly that, you know, it's too quickly for the body re to respond. And so you get tears and breakages in bones and things like that. Um, anyway, so that is what's underway so that hopefully there'd be, you know, when, when this, mannequin or test dummy is completed it's a way it would be a way to quickly evaluate a vehicle uh to make sure that the injuries to the people inside are going to be minor or non-existent and not serious or fatal yeah and the thing that surprised me is they used cadavers like human cadavers in the testing because you know i've always heard okay well, well, they've used like pigs or like because they, they mimic the human body oh, right um that was like, yeah wow. Right. Well, yeah, pigs, you know, um, pigs are, are, are closest to the human body, but they're, they don't move in the same way. I mean, even, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, the slow motion footage of somebody sitting in a seat 
with a blast underneath, um, there's a lot of flailing of the limbs, you know, and a pig has really short limbs. I mean, for that kind of work, uh, a pig wouldn't really give you much good information. You know, their necks, their heads don't move on their necks the same way. A lot of it, it's a lot of flailing that happens really quickly and damages, you know, the, the spine and the limbs and that wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Um, so the, the, the automotive industry did the exact same thing in the sixties using human cadavers, just, you know, going through the different, at different speeds, what kind of injuries would this create? You know, so that, you know, the, the test dummy only can tell you how much force or how much strain, you know, you you need the cadaver work to tell you, well, what does that force or strain actually do? Is it a minimal injury or is it a fatal injury? So, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the cadaver work has been a, a big deal. I mean, it's, it's, the, the military doesn't undertake that work in a cavalier way. It, it, at this point, you now have to have something like six months of approval process all the way up to Congress has to sign off on the use of a cadaver in, in, in any, um, you know, anything that would expose the body to something like uh, an explosion. Right. And again, it's like an explosion from way below. It's not like you are dismembering a body. Right. It's it's yeah. And I mean, how it sounds it sounds ghastly, and people kind of freak out when they hear it. But it's not not, not including as, generals. <laughs> yeah, well, you talk about in the book, like yeah, when the generals found out what they wanted, they were they were pretty reluctant to uh, sign off on it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, has the research uh, made the vehicles better to withstand IED explosions? Yes. Since the start of the war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 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 strikers and the MRAPs are way better than Humvees. Yeah. I mean, a, a Humvee. You know, it's fine if somebody's just shooting a gun at you, but for RPGs and IEDs, they were not up to the task. And um, yes, the, the, these vehicles are much much better. Yeah. They're much better. The problem is, you can't roll them out instantly, and and the time it takes to get them test them, get them, procure them, um, you know, people are being blown up. So, you know, it's not ideal, but, you know, it can't really happen instantly. So, uh, one of the things you talk about about in the book is that uh, the military has gotten really good at saving lives. You know, injuries or wounds that would have been, you know, lethal, you know, 20 years ago, we can save that person now. But as a consequence, uh, we have, you know, more individuals with PTSD, amputations, you know, individuals with uh, prosthetics. And like the prosthetics have gotten a lot better um, because of the the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which has helped civilians as well. But another area, an injury that no one never talks about, but that the military is actually researching is is an injury that is to a soldier's genitalia. And I didn't, I, I mean, I when I thought about it, I was like, well, of course that would happen if you were uh, blown up by an IED in your vehicle. Yeah. So I'm curious, how widespread is the injury among vets in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars to their to their genitalia? Um, the 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 figure that I was given um, uh, for the and I, I'm, I can't remember exa- I think it was Operation During Freedom anyway anyway it was like for for, for eighteen thousand amputations, three hundred genital injuries so it's still a small number obviously. Um, the first thing that gets blown up is your foot. You know, the higher up you go, the bigger the explosion has to be. So, uh, and for a long time, and even now still sometimes, but uh, for, you know, for, for many 
decades of military conflict, if the explosion was so big that it would reach the pelvic region, you didn't survive. So now, like you said, they're now people are surviving, um, but, but it's still um, a small number compared to more conventional injuries to the limbs. And uh, how does the, these sort of inter- injuries affect a vet's life after the war? Oh, it's 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 um, well, depending on. Um, yeah, you know, I mean it's a, it's a, it's devastating in a variety of ways. I mean, it, you like the the guy that I talked to, uh, who had um, stepped on an IED and he had damage to both legs, missing part of both legs, and some damage to the penis, specifically to the urethra. Um, he he said, you know, when he's waiting for the medevac helicopter, he he said he said this, I said this half jokingly. I said, if my penis is gone, just leave me here. And he said, I was, you know, I wasn't serious, but on the other hand, you know, I, I haven't had kids and I want something to do that with. And um, also just something like, you know, they were repairing his urethra and they could have done this thing where they just thread it through the taint, right? <laughs> you know, the space between your penis and your butt. Um, but then you got a pee sitting down, you know, and, and like, that's a big deal. I mean, it's like, it's easy to dismiss something like that and like, oh, big deal, you know, as long as you can walk. Um, but, but then you know, on top of that, the, the, how it affects your relationship. I mean, it's hard enough for families to get through the aftermath of a serious combat injury when it's just, you know, relearning to walk or getting used to prosthetic, you know, but, but when it's, you know, it also involves your sex life, you know, that that's that's huge. And it's something that it's too easy to dismiss it as a lifestyle factor. Um, and it isn't just genital injuries. It's like if somebody's lost part of both limbs and a hand, well, what sexual positions work? You know, like, how do you have sex? Or, you know, there's also, there are resources that kind of address this stuff in a really straightforward way, but there's not a lot of people who are on staff at Walter Reed to, share that information and there should be there should be a couple people that's just what they do it should be just you know that you make an appointment with this person who says you know it's going to take some adjustment but you still you can still have a great sex life you know here's a couple things you could buy here's a couple things you could try you know just just talk about it in a matter of fact way and the military's been a little uncomfortable with that and um has you know needs to kind of get up to speed and on, on making that. those people part of, yeah, making those people part of the staff and part of the process. Right. And, and also the drugs that veterans take, you know, make it harder to get erections, antidepressants and painkillers, and that does a number on your sex life too. So, um, yeah, anyway, I mean, yeah, like one of the themes in your book seems like the military's gotten really good at keeping soldiers alive um, after, you know, after a severe, but they don't, they don't, they haven't really spent much time. Like, okay, what, what after that, right? Like what, what, what yeah. do we do with these guys after that point? Yeah, exactly. I, and I think that's, um, you know, I mean, it, it's understandable that the priority is to keep them alive, but I think, you know, there may have been some underestimation of the long-term after effects and, and how important it is to address that. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. 
Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? when I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. 
masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, and in your book, uh, you were talking about how the military um, is experimenting with uh, penis transplants. And they, and mm-hmm. like you, t- you mentioned in the book, it was like February, 2016. Like they're, yeah, they're about to, but like they actually did one. Not, it wasn't the military, it was some yeah. other group, but like that's been done now. Yeah, it was at Mass General, Massachusetts General Hospital. They did it. There was a, a, um, a cancer patient. Um, the, the Johns Hopkins, the one that I wrote about in the book was at Johns Hopkins. I mean, the, the cadaver work was being done and uh, their patient, and they have somebody who's a, a recipient who's ready. He's he's a veteran. I haven't spoken to him, but um, and they were still <clears throat> waiting for a, a, a match. They still um, that, that hasn't happened yet. But um, yeah, no, it happened. It, it, the first uh, the first U.S. transplant happened. I guess it was two weeks before the book came out. Yeah, and did the any like any of the military research or surgeries like have an influence in it or? Was that something kind of completely cordoned off? Well, the the, um, the the cadaver lab that I went to where they were working out some of the details of which arteries to reattach, like which ones were the most important, that was, um, they were those guys were getting some mil- some funding from the Defense Department. Because, you know, obviously this is a something that would benefit a lot of veterans. But, um, so, wait, what was the question? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, I was curious, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the folks that did the, uh, penal transplant, you know, not too long ago, I'm just, was, what did, uh, the military research play any role in? Oh, you know, I don't know whether the mass general team had any defense department funding that I, I don't know the answer to that. So one thing I didn't think about, I thought was interesting was, uh, the research that, the military does with hearing yeah. uh, and hearing loss. And um, so there's two problems there. So like you want to prevent hearing loss because soldiers are around loud stuff all the time, guns, explosions, helicopters, jet engines. But whenever you uh, put on earplugs, like then it, they can't hear what's going on around them. Yeah. Um, so what are the, what are, what's the military doing to overcome that problem? There is a pretty cool thing called TCAPS, Tactical Communication and Protection System, which I've tried on and I want a pair because you could eavesdrop on people on the subway like across the car and they wouldn't know. <laughs> it, what it, what it, it's kind of cool. It's this headset. Uh, it's got communications built in so you can communicate wirelessly with someone overhead in a helicopter or someone back at the base or just the other people in your unit who are 40 feet away from you. Um, and it so it, it selectively amplifies quiet sounds like a human voice and it mitigates loud noise. Like it, it, it takes noises, kind of processes them and reproduces them either quieter if they're loud or louder if they're soft. And it, it, it just makes all the difference because um, it, nobody, you know, if a firefight breaks out, if things go kinetic, as they say in the military, the last thing you're worried about is, who wears my hearing Where's my hearing protection? I got to get you know. You're not. That's that's the last thing on your mind. Uh, so, uh, and, and you can't predict when the loud noise is going to happen, and nobody's going to wear hearing protection for an, six hours on patrol. They're just not going to wear that stuff because it they lose their situational awareness. They can't tell a car driving up behind them or somebody saying something to them from twenty feet away. So, um, they're not going to wear it, yeah. even though they're given it. 
So um, the, everybody should have this system. It'd be great. Obviously, it's it's expensive, and it's you know the priority has been special operations teams and people who need it most. But um, hopefully, everyone who needs it will soon get it. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the the hearing loss issue, like I never thought about that, but like that is a problem. Like I think you you talked about how uh, I think it was a seal saying like he was with a bunch of his buddies. Like this is like the thing I hate the most. Is, like we're sitting at a table and like we can't hear each other trying to have a conversation yeah. at dinner time, or when we talk, we have to like yell at each other. Yeah, exactly. And he said, yeah, because he goes, you know, when I was talking to him, I was asking a lot of questions because you know he's a. Um, I believe he was a sniper. I, was, I wasn't entirely sure, but I was asking him stuff about that. And then, you know, and he said, this is, this is the hardest part. And I thought he was talking about like, you know, people and their stupid assumptions and questions. I'm like, yeah, I get it. And it turned out he was talking about a loud restaurant because yeah, it was a, a dinner and there are a lot of people in a small room. He's like, you, you look around, look at these guys. You can see them. They'll start to just go, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, just nod and they'll withdraw from the conversation because they can't hear anything. Yeah. And that could also influence, you know, things like PTSD or some of the emotional trauma that might, because they, they, they can't talk. Yeah. They can't communicate with the outside world. So yeah, as you said, they, they turn inward. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you feel, I, I would imagine you feel isolated enough coming back from an intense scenario like special operations or, or any deployment, really, you feel apart from the average everyday people who surround you and now you also can't really hear what they're saying in a, in a loud room or, you know, even in a quiet room. Uh, so you, you, I would think you'd be even more isolated and depressed. So uh, yeah, I would think it, it it's um, kind of a uh, force multiplier as they say. Right. Um, so another um, section you devoted the book to is this, the military's uh, expensive research project during world war two and it's developing the perfect stink bomb, basically, is what they were trying to do. <laughs> and I mean, the amount of money they spent on this is, I mean, I forgot what it was in today. It was like over $100 million in today today's dollar value. Um, why did they spend so much money on an object used by ninth grade pranksters? <laughs> um, it was actually the OSS, precursor okay, yeah. to the CIA. So right. you have, we have to blame them right. for this one. Um, I think... Because they could, because they had a big budget, and it was um, the research director's pet project. I think he thought this is quick and easy, and it's something. It was something to specifically for. It wasn't really a you know. I called the I, I made a reference to stink bombs in the title of the chapter, but it was actually a stink paste and a little a stink spray or paste that you would squeeze on onto the surreptitiously as a citizen in an in occupied country like France, say you would sidle up to some German officer and spray this stuff on his uniform. Um, and the idea was to humiliate and ostracize him to ruin his morale. So it was just, it was looked upon as a, as a simple and cheap thing to get into the hands of motivated citizens in occupied countries. It didn't turn out to be simple or cheap. Um, a tremendous amount of work. First of all, they had to, figure out what is the most dastardly awful scent. The original idea was something that would smell of a very loose bowel movement to quote Stanley Lovell, the OSS research director, uh, that morphed into something. Um, they wanted, they, they changed it to make it something unfamiliar, you know, horrible, but unfamiliar, which would be sort of also bewildering and alarming. So people would think, wow, wow, that 
that man really smells horrible and scary. But then, and then they had all these problems with the delivery system. Um, there was backfire. There was dribble. Uh, there was leakage in the warehouse. There was all manner of, uh, and so there's just rounds and rounds of testing and reformulating and redoing the packaging. And in the end, they never deployed. They never used them. They were in the catalog and actually kind of amazed me that there was a OSS had a catalog. I would have loved to see that. I couldn't find any copies of the OSS gadget catalog, but they uh, apparently there was a big demand for it. They made, I think 200 of them never deployed them, never got them out because 17 days after the final report, the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and that was the end of the war. So, and I tried to find a tube, a remaining tube. I think they probably are somewhere at Aberdeen proving ground. Somebody said they ended up at a, I didn't have any luck with those folks uh, locating any samples. However, the uh, however the Monell Chemical Census Center did have a sample of it for me to to smell, and it's pretty awful. It smells bad. Kind of a yeah, it's pretty awful. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you what, wouldn't want that sprayed on your jacket, right? And what, the other interesting thing I thought about the research with trying to find the stink that would demoralize people was. The other thing they ran into is like some cultures like found like putrid smells. Actually, that smells pretty good. Like uh, sewage. Yeah. Like people in Mexico yeah. are like, yeah, that kind of reminds me. That's it's a pleasant smell or <laughs> vomit. Yeah, like, oh, okay, yeah, that's they, great. Yeah. Yeah. And they, one of the, the questions they had, they'd say, do you, you know, it was very specific. Do you find this scent to be? And and one of the options was wearable and edible. And for Dirty feet, vomit, sewage. There'd be at least three to ten percent in in a lot of, in, in various cultures that would say, "Yeah, yeah, I'd I'd wear that as a perfume." Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. So to find something that was universally loathed and feared um, was a challenge. They ended up with uh, U.S. government standard bathroom malodor, which was a chemical compound developed to test latrine deodorants. You know, you needed something that approximated a field latrine. This was in World War II. You needed something that smelled that bad so that they could test the deodorizers. So that was the winner that almost every culture couldn't bear. Or every culture found right. it not only off-putting, but scary. Yeah. So, um, okay. yeah, so that in, in more recent stink, uh, malodorant, non-lethal weapons work, that's been the one they started with. And then they doctored it up with a few other compounds and they, do they do they use stink bombs today in the military at all or um you know the um 1998 was the the pride the, the project where they were looking for the universal um universally loathed scent and um monel chemical census center did this work they came up with something called stench soup i have a sample in my closet that i haven't dared to open <laughs> in, a, in a box in a tube double bagged um, but, uh, I asked the researcher, Pam Dalton, what has the military done with this? It's, it's, it's a, your basic non-lethal weapon as in, um, clear terrain, uh, get people out of a compound, disperse a mob, you know, it's that kind of a device. You can also use loud noise and, you know, flash, you know, flash bomb, flash bang bombs. You know, there's, there's various ways to do it. I don't know where they've deployed this bench soup. She, she didn't either. She said, I gave it, I gave them the formula and what they did with it. I don't know. Okay. So I don't know 
if it's used. Okay. Um, so, and then the other area you talk about in the book is sleep. And this has been, I guess the military has researched a lot about sleep because the one hand, yeah. they, they want their soldiers to be able to go without sleep um, for, you know, because sometimes battles can go on for more than 24 hours. But at the same time, sleep degrades performance significantly. So what's the research going on there? Are the mil- is the military trying to figure out ways to allow soldiers to go without sleep but still maintain peak performance? Uh, for, for, for a long time, up until quite recently, there was a lot of work into al- alternatives to caffeine, like um, compounds that might enable someone to stay awake without degrading performance. And they didn't really come up with anything. There's not, right now, the, the drug of the drug of currency is uh, caffeine. That's that's where we're at after all these years. They haven't. So there there was work. You know, there's something called. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce. Is it modafinil. It, I didn't really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Nobody, and I don't know exactly whether it just wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, or whether there were side effects. But you don't hear about modafinil much now. Uh, it's 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 caffeine and it's coffee and Red Bull. So and they, they and the other they, the priority now is kind of shifted to let's try to protect sleep, let's try let's let's find ways to work sleep into a soldier's schedule, whether it's like power naps or, or yeah, and also there's been some work on you know because circadian rhythm is interesting and in that young young people's when they're awake when they're awake and when they're sleepy it shifts over the, the decades like when you're a teenager or in your 20s, you tend to be, you know, wide awake till midnight, one in the morning, and you want to, you want to sleep until nine or 10. And when you're in your 60s and 70s, you know, you're nodding off at nine o'clock and waking up at five. So, uh, and unfortunately, the military tends to have early wake up calls, whether it's, you know, boot camp or combat, you're getting up at dawn or earlier. So uh, it's been really hard for young men and women. Because yeah. they, you know, they're not, they're just not built for that schedule. So right. there's been some work done, um, making, you know, pushing the wake up call in, during training, um, a little bit later, allowing them to stay up a little later and sleep a little later. Yeah. Cause they're going to stay up anyway. They're all like just lying in their bunks wide awake on their smartphones. I mean, but you did mention like, I guess they, they thought about this idea, but like there's some animals that, um, can, um, stay awake, like one part of their brain stays awake while the other part sleeps. Like I guess ducks do this. Uh, they can keep an eye yeah. out. And so they thought, well, maybe we can somehow do something where we can get soldiers to be able to do that. <laughs> well, that was a DARPA idea. That was a DARPA tends to be just the outside the box, futuristic brainstorming entity. And there was a paper I came across that talked about, you know, what ways could we modify the human body? What way could we, could we learn something from research onto animals, into animals, um, and could we apply this in any way? And one of the things they talked about was animals that sleep with one hemisphere of the brain and, and are alert with the other. Like marine mammals, because they have to swim to the surface to breathe, they're, that while they sleep, they're still doing that. So they've got part of the brain awake. And uh, duck, some ducks and geese, I think it was also geese, uh, they all sleep in a group, and they, the ones on the perimeter seem to be sleeping with half the brain and looking out for predators with the other half. So, you know, somebody mentioned like, oh, if we like cut the connector between the brains so that people actually have independently functioning brains and we can train them. Um, 
but nobody's advocating doing that right. at this point. It was just DARPA funded some research um, yeah, just, into the yeah. mechanism uh, in these creatures. Just so DARPA being DARPA, it went. DARPA being defense. What does DARPA stand for? I don't defense Advanced Research. research. Authority. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've dealt with DARPA very little. DARPA is, you know, initially when I started the book, I thought I will be living at DARPA, but DARPA is kind of an office that funds university work. They don't really have their own, their own, own labs. Labs and yeah, they're so they they fund various things. A lot of it out of the realm of what I was covering. You know, yeah, more, you were covering sort of more like weapons. yeah, you were covering more of like the everyday stuff that. Affects soldiers well, yeah, yeah, right the, now. The human experience, exactly. The, hum- the kind of the human experience of deployment and combat. Yeah. Well, Mary, this right. is- and, and yeah, right. The right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mary, this has been a great conversation. Um, where can people learn more about Grunt? Oh, they well, they uh, just website maryroach.net, but there's tons of uh, articles and reviews uh, on the internet they could check out or just. Go blindly buy a copy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Go to Amazon. Just click now. Buy now. All right. Well, Mary Roach, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You bet. My pleasure. My guest today was Mary Roach. She's the author of the book Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Uh, and also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash grunt, uh, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.